We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. Joining me for this episode is Tristan Thomas. Tristan is an academy coach at Aldershot Town Football Club in England. He's worked in the US system as well. He's done a lot of tactical analysis, scouting, and runs a fantastic resource on Twitter at Flying Wingback, runs that account. So absolutely brilliant tactical analysis, youth development. I want to get him on to talk about how to merge the two, what the player of tomorrow is going to look like, and how that player is developed in academies, particularly in England at the minute, and comparing that to the US. So some great insight from Tristan. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. If you haven't already, please head online and check out the new Modern Soccer Coach platform. We've had a really, really good response. Coaches signing up, taking a look at it. The objective is different from social media. It's a little bit more detailed, more context, more depth, where we can put some substance into posts, into analysis, into session planning. And just use it as well for a connection for coaches to maybe get some new ideas and connect with other people as well. So please go ahead, take a look. The link is on this podcast, free 14-day trial, and then it's only $6 a month. So if you enjoy the content of the books or the, the social media stuff that we put together, please go ahead, take a look at this because I think it's just taken everything to another level. So so we'd love to you know your thoughts. Appreciate all the support. Here is Tristan. Enjoy. Tristan, thanks so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really excited to have you on. No worries, Gary. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, I've been a big fan of you and, and this podcast for a while. So yeah, it's really, really good to be here. Oh, much appreciated. Much appreciated. So our, our topic, preparing young players for the demands of tomorrow's game or the modern game. And, and basically when I'm putting this together, I'm, I'm looking at you know, are we preparing young players for the adult game almost and how we view it and how we try to manufacture it? So I'm going to start with you and and ask you to describe your philosophy with those young players as you get them and, and try to manoeuvre them through the ranks. Yeah, so that's the big question, isn't it? What's your philosophy as a coach? Um, I've been trying to work it out for a while and I'm still working it out. And I'm not sure if I ever will, you know, get that eureka moment and work it out. It's something that constantly changes. Um, so I think because of that, um, and it's, it's quite interesting, it's something I saw in a Mourinho Sky Sports little clip from the other day um, that he drew quite a good impa- uh, comparison. I don't want to over-embellish things straight away um, with Charles Darwin, an evolution of species. And basically the species that survives is not the most intelligent and it's not the strongest, it's the one that can adapt the best. It's the one that most, is most adaptable to change. So I think it's creating players for me that are adaptable. And therefore, myself as a coach is to be adaptable to all scenarios, to all sort of uh, methods of practice. Um, yeah, so it, it, and adapting to the individuals. So I've personally maybe gone from a, on a journey of being a young coach who's uh, fairly command orientated and wanted my, my young under eight as like a 16 year old myself to play really good football and, um, you know, and pass it around really nicely to then even just a couple of years later, really focusing more on dribbling and creativity and maybe even taking more of a hands off approach to where I am now, which is maybe somewhere in between. Um, but someone that just looks to each individual player and asks myself, you know, what can I do for their own development uh, to create them? Uh, to sort of maximise their potential as them as an individual, not trying to be something they're not. Yeah, so it's almost taking a step back, right? We're almost consumed by Sky Sports and the way we're we're looking at football today. We've so, so much access to either sound bites from the highest level and videos from the highest level, and uh, you're saying that your starting point is almost to go inside the player's shoes and say, "All right, I'm I'm going to see it from your your point of view first and foremost." 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's brilliant place to have role models. So if you've got, you know, a young holding midfield player to look at players like Busquets or Frankie Young or N'Golo Kante and sort of say, where am I as a player uh, on that spectrum? Who do I fit best with? And can I go and watch games and, and try and emulate them? But then as a coach, it's understanding that, you know, an under-10 game of football is very, very different and always will be from a, a first-team level, level of football. At that young age as well, you're still still in the dream process as well, aren't they? You know, like they're as much as we would like to sell them on the benefits of a right back or hold a midfielder. When we were young, when I was young, I wanted to be Maradona. I was the furthest thing away from Maradona, but you couldn't sell me on a Phil Neville position, and that's that's almost what we try to do as coaches. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so important not to stifle or pigeonhole players at such a young age to you're this position, you're that position. I mean, you even look at like some of the top pros, um, like for example, James Milner sort of started off as a centre mid and then played as a as a wide player and that has played left back at times. Even someone like Busquets, who I said before, I think he was a striker in Barcelona's B team when he first went in um, before Guardiola, you know, brought him back into the midfield. So yeah, definitely, yeah. each player can sort of, uh, it's really important that they be who they want to be as a player. And then you you as a coach is just sort of helping them and moulding them and showing them the right direction. Yeah, so let's pick up on that then, the the helping them and moulding them and challenging them. And it's something that, you know, sometimes in coaches we get, we get the balance wrong because it's so difficult. I haven't worked in youth soccer in about eight years. And the longer I'm away from it, the more I almost appreciate how difficult it is. And getting that balance right between challenging the player and molding the player, getting that right between that and keeping that fun, that enjoyment, that love, that passion of the game. How do you do that at a level now where people are looking at almost professionalizing and and growing in that direction? Yeah, I think, well, first and foremost, the best players, probably all ages, will find fun and enjoyment from the challenge. Um, And I think if you can identify, especially someone that has that in their mentality, that's a hundred percent something you're looking for as a coach or a scout, as a player that can you know move on and do big things in the game. Someone that loves a challenge. Um, yeah, I think personally as a coach, you, you, like you said, you've got to find that sweet spot between having a player out of their comfort zone versus out of their depth. You know, like if you chucked me in a in a physics lecture at Harvard, I'm going to be way out of my depth, and it's going to be like the professor speaking French. I won't have a clue what's going on you know, maybe I'd be better off starting at a different level versus it's exactly the same with a player. If you've got a player, you know, um, in a game where the ability of all the other players is way, way above, it's probably not going to be very helpful. Uh, But if you can, in training, for example, have a practice where uh, a team is struggling to start off with, there's not too much success, you know, they need to jump through a few hoops, either, you know, literally or or not to to get points um, in sort of like a game-based practice, then things are going to have to be on point. Their body shape is going to have to be right. They're going to have to be you know, executing their 1v1s really well. They're going to have to be getting up and scanning versus a practice you've designed where it's 83, it's far too easy. Um, and then the players can maybe fall into bad habits, especially if you're in sort of like a youth development phase, so 12, 13s onwards. Um, yeah, you need the players to be at a right sort of level and right challenge. And I've, I've heard it called sort of like the pit or, or hole. And, you know, some players, if you sort of step back for a bit, if, you, if they're down in a hole, maybe, you know, they're tall enough to jump out the hole or they're good enough at climbing to climb themselves out of the hole. But if the hole's a tiny bit too big, then you go in as a coach and you just give them maybe a step ladder or maybe a slightly bigger ladder and just help them sort of get out uh, uh, and work things out for themselves. Yeah, so it's it's almost tearing then their progression to some, are, some people are at different levels and, and obviously helping them to climb and progress. Do you think that there's a danger in today's coaching community that we we set our expectations a little bit too high? And I'm wondering how that is with, especially in England, where you know you're we, we're exposed obviously to worldwide soccer here and TV, uh, you know, internet, social media. You're living in that in that world of. Premier League is right next door to a lot of your clubs. Does the expectation just go sometimes too high of what the game actually could be like or what it could be like at a youth level? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, mean, um, I, I would agree. I think 
there are some coaches that would, you know, like I said before, maybe even me as a younger coach, want their under eights, under nines team to look like, you know, one of Pep Guardiola's teams. And I hear people on podcasts like this all the time, you know, saying the same thing, you know, not to, to focus on individuals rather than um, playing this beautiful football. However, there's also a lot of coaches that turn their nose up to tactical elements completely and would even their coaching in under 17, 18, 19. Um, and they're maybe called dinosaurs. We're not even coaching players on simple things like, the four moments of the game. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fine in a balance. But me, as like an under-13s coach, for example, I'd uh, much prefer a player, and I've got to find the right way to say it, much prefer a player to come to me that has so much skill and so much talent and so much ability on the ball and is really good, either a brilliant passer or a brilliant dribbler. Uh, and then myself, I can, you know, help them out with the positional sort of things rather than get a player that's been playing, you know, in a beautiful positional play system since the age of eight, but on the ball, you know, has limits to their potential. Maybe they look better in a game. Maybe they'll be more effective out on the pitch on a Saturday morning. Um, but in the long run, and without sounding harsh, there's probably a ceiling to, to their upper potential if throughout the eights, nines, tens age group, they've not been, you know, challenged to, to take touches on the ball or take players on or play creative passes. Because... A lot of coaches maybe could draw comparisons with players and say, you know, that top player he just gives it, uh, he just gets it and gives it. Or that player they play off one or two touches. But I know Gary, can can you tell me one top world class operator that that actually does that? That actually only pays off one touch. I mean, I mean I'm I'm struggling. People say like Iniesta, Javi Busquets, you know that famous Barcelona trio midfield. But you know, Iniesta was brilliant at taking players on. You know, in the final third, Javi was playing unbelievable dinked balls over the top to Messi, um, which you probably messed up again and again and again and again as a 12, 14, 16-year-old. Um, but obviously he got to that age and had the quality to, to get it right on the big stage. Same with Busquets, you know, doesn't just win it back and play it. Simple, he, he bought ability, body feint, it's unbelievable, you know, give someone the eyes and slip the ball into the attacking midfield player. So, um, yeah, I think... We, we, we get bogged down in, in positioning a lot of the time, especially with younger players. And yeah, of course, we want our teams to play good football. Um, but it's certainly looking you know, at the individual, that's the most important thing. How can we educate them tactically to a certain extent? Um, but first and foremost, especially in the foundation phase, probably technically on what they can do on the ball. All right, so we're looking at the player right now and we're looking at, you know, the game's getting faster, it's getting quicker, it's getting more tactical. Technology is playing a role. Well, however, we view that it's going to keep changing, keep improving, keep developing for tomorrow. As, how much do you think that the values of yesterday, in terms of not a, not how how I grew up was direct football and linear passing and you know get it, knock it, time and place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not those values, but values in our family, values in respect, values in work ethic, values in manners. How much, as we progress one way, do we still need to, How are we moving away or, are, or is it harder to keep keep those other values very, very uh, close by? How how difficult is it? Do you see it? Do we still need them? What's your views? Yeah, no, uh, I completely agree. I completely agree, Gary. Um, I think overall, as a, as a coach, you're, you're a developer but you're a developer of a person first before you're a developer of a player. So keeping those, um, you know, real fundamental life skills, keeping them at the core of your like development methodology is vital. Um, it, as as uh, I think Jared Jones was saying to you the other day, it's so difficult to be a, a child nowadays with uh, the internet and and things like, like I said, cyberbullying and, and peer pressure and things like that. Um, so, yeah creating a, a group environment where players are challenged in all four corners. They're challenged so socially in a group. You know, do they go over to their peers and shake their hand, look them in the eye and uh, and ask them how their day was. Uh, I, I think we've lost that in a lot of a lot of areas. I work at a certain place with players that are 16, 17, 18 year olds now and they do, you know, lack those basic life skills and they come to us uh, lacking that and, and it's quite sad in a way and then we're, we've really got our work cut out we've only got maybe two or three years before they go on to the real world um, so yeah if you're an academy coach 
and the players were with you three, four times a week, for example, and you're one of their biggest contact points, it, you are hugely responsible for what person they are when they leave the building. Um, so, so yeah, I completely agree with you there, Gary. I always get in a, in a discussion slash argument with one of the coaches here on staff, Craig, about he's convinced that you can only get to the top if you're a good person, that good people thrive in locker rooms, and that as they progress as a player, they have to be accepted by the group of players who are around them, first and foremost. That's the fundamental, along with talent, that's the fundamental part of almost this social acceptance. So he's convinced that if you're selfish to an point that you can't think of other people, you won't survive. And it, it's interesting because I've never looked at that before, but I wonder if if in these academies that there's any work being done. I always hear about the coaches that shake hands. Yeah, Gary, that's great. Our our players shake hands with everyone when they arrive. And I think, well, that's great. Like I, I would like my child to go to that there as well. That'd be great. But that's... Just in no way is that going to be enough to develop manners and life skills, you know? Is there other yeah. things being done? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think um, setting a positive role model as a coach is probably one. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting what, you, what your colleague was saying because a lot of the players at the top level, you know, big names, Neymar, I don't know him personally, but um, he's not someone that you'd have down as a team player. He's, you know, or someone as maybe a leader. Uh, especially like in terms of vocally on the pitch, but and he's a, a maverick. So as a coach, it's it's kind of uh, working out where those individuals fit within the group. And going back to what I said earlier, catering yourself as a coach um, to allow for those mavericks to flourish. So I, like you said, I do hear a lot of academies, uh, and it's the whole all blacks thing. You know, no egos, this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've got to be so careful, especially when we're talking about kids of. of uh, thinking, yes, we don't want players to be prima donnas at a very young age. Um, and yes, we don't want players to have to think they've made it when they haven't. But when we look at the top, top players, people like you mentioned, Maradona, um, people like Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, they've got pretty big egos. And anyone tell me that they don't, you know, is, is probably wrong. Uh, so, like you said, it's, a, it's about finding where they are within the group, making sure they're doing the right thing to some extent, making sure they're not uh, you know, verbally abusing people on the training pitch, but also making sure that um, they're still allowed to flourish individually. Because I, I, I do hear some academy speak, and I think, oh, you know, would someone like Deli Ali, a highly creative player, uh, a tiny bit of a maverick on the pitch, would he have succeeded in that environment? No, potentially not. Uh, so, so yeah, it's really, really important to, to develop and, and nurture those different types of personalities. Yeah, it's something that, for me, it goes alongside the culture. And, and culture is, whereas you, you, the word in, in England is probably player development is the is the biggest word used around the youth side of the game. And, and ours, it's, you know, when you integrate the college side of it, culture is, is almost the biggest word used. And sometimes I think culture can, you mentioned that maverick, and how does that maverick develop in a culture where everyone is getting behind a, we are this, you know, almost too much collective. Do you think at the youth level you can actually, we can actually overdo the, you know, yeah, they are, there is a selfish side to every child naturally, but can you overcook the collective piece of it to the detriment of the child's development? Yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think you really can. Um, yeah, for, for the reasons I already mentioned, and I think that the key when you're developing young players has to be on the individual, you know, like I've said, I think, especially because I coached in the States for a couple of years and, and there is a very, very much a sense of, you know, we're a team, we're all together, which is brilliant. And it develops those teamwork skills. Um, however, if, if I'm a parent and my child's at a club and I've paid the fees and in the States, you know, the fees are high, as you know, uh, to have my child developed and I'm hearing the coach just talk about the team and the collective and we this and we that and we won, we lost, we want to make it to the State Cup final. I'm going to be thinking, you know, what about my kid? What if, you know, they've only paid 20 minutes at the detriment, uh, to the detriment of their development? Or what if they've only been farmed out and played left back when really they think they should be a centre midfield player? 
purely because the coach thinks that's the way the best way to win. Um, so so yeah, uh, I think it's it's important, like I said, just to focus on individuals, uh, and I think that goes through all all ages really. If you're a coach of a first team, uh, as you know, Gary, the players uh, only respond to to you if they think there's a good relationship there. So if there's no relationship, there's yeah, they might want to work hard because it's their job or because they really, really want, want the team to do well or want to do well individually. But there's probably a tiny bit missing or a tiny extra 10% they can give if there's a great bond between the coaching staff and, and all the players uh, together. Can tough love, can that still exist today? Is that a thing of the past? Yeah, again, because people th throw around terms like tough love uh, and mean different things. You know, I've seen coaches, myself, and I'm sure every youth coach has, you know, speak to young people in a completely, you know, probably unacceptable way, uh, in a way where they've got an, an under-10s group, for example, but they're speaking to those kids and they're demanding so much of those kids that their year five teacher at school, or I'm not sure what grade that is in the, in the States, grade uh, four, whatever that is in the States, um, would never steam into the classroom and say, you know, can you do this really, really quickly? Can you write out this story in, in 20 minutes and anyone that doesn't do it isn't attention? A good teacher would never do that. And it's the same as, as a coach. It's allowing the player to, to develop at their own rates. But, you know, I'm certainly someone myself that I would say I, I demand uh, a certain level of effort and hard work out of any player I coach because I think that's the most important thing, especially if, if they're an academy and and you know that player has goals in the game which they won't achieve if, if they're uh, if they're not working hard. So, and I think that's a really really key bit as well. If you sit down with each player before you start coaching them, or just as you start coaching them, and say, you know, why are you here? What's your goal? What's your reason? And if they want to say, I want to be the best player in the world, and then 20 minutes later in the session you see their head drop or them not giving 100 percent, then you can say. Oh, hang on, 20 minutes ago, you told me you were going to be the best player in the world. Do you think Lionel Messi does this in sessions? You know, do you think when, when he was a kid, he didn't go home and, and, he, and he just, you know, put his feet up and, and played the Xbox or whatever the equivalent was back then? No, he probably didn't. He was probably out playing and, uh, and practicing and honing his craft. So, yeah, if you can find out what the players, what their goals are, um, and not their parents, what their parents think they should be, but what the actual player wants to be, and then you can hold them accountable for that. I think that's key. Um, so in, in terms of tough love, I think it's important to push players to their potential, um, but certainly not at the detriment of them psychologically or anything like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's almost defining what that toughness is going to be and probably probably a good idea to discuss that with your with your boss as well isn't it because some people could define tough love as a physical tough session and other people could define it as i'm going to have and blind at you for an hour mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah exactly that yeah going back to that individual uh and obviously we've had a few of these podcasts that are you know gerard a couple of weeks ago and louis lanks as well getting that individual michael beal is one of these individual people who want the individual to blossom in the in the team environment, how do you do that on the pitch, Tristan? With session plans or exercises or manipulating games, or how do you develop that allow space for the individual, that little bit of creativity, that little bit of courage? Are there are there tips for us there? Yeah, well, in in terms of the the creativity, I think I think creativity in the modern game. Uh, and this goes back to your original sort of point and, and the, the subject, the topic of this podcast, which is developing players for the modern game. I think in the modern game, creativity is almost non-negotiable. Um, look at players at the top level and whether that's uh, the most expensive centre-back in the Premier League, Van Dijk, take, you know, stepping into midfield with the ball or playing great switch passes or, um, you know, going back a bit, players like Paul Scholes playing, you know, lovely 60-yard diagonal balls and then Ryan Giggs is, is through in on goal. Creativity comes in different, many different forms, uh, and I think it's really, really important for top players to be able to express themselves on the pitch. There's a great clip. I'm not sure if it's still on the FA website of Gareth Southgate when he was England under 21 coach um, doing a session with about 20 or so players, and he set up the practice. Uh, they played for a bit, and then he stopped it and he said, "You know, put your hands up, the creative players here." 
and maybe like two up for 20 put their hands up and it was probably like a number seven or and a, and a number nine essentially but he said no hang on i've just seen a goalkeeper doing a Cruyff turn inside his own box and playing out i've just seen a centre-back stepping with the ball into midfield so you know creativity exists in many forms and it, and it exists all over the pitch so in terms of actually in practice in terms of session design i think it's probably creating sessions that look like the game um especially you know as you move forward through the age groups there the players need to know um what the game's like and the best way to do that is in training but then if a player makes a mistake in a game or in training loses the ball but you can see the intentions behind it uh, and you praise that then they're probably going to try it again and then they might get it right just like i was mentioned earlier with, with javi you know probably continuously trying those through balls and then you know that one time he finds the gap and then he can't miss the gap he gets it every single time um so i think a real environment of uh, dan machichi calls it unconditional love where the players know they're free to express themselves and free to try anything within a practice or within a game and if it goes wrong you know so be it no one cares about the score of an under 15s match you know but a lot of people are going to care when you know you're stepping on to the pitch to make your first team debut yeah so you would say that to be a top player i suppose today tomorrow modern game that the creativity is a must then yeah um and like i said creativity is not always you know fancy skills uh you know like neymar flicking a, a ball over a player's head uh, yeah can in many different forms and i think even if you go down the pyramid and down the leagues I'm a, I'm a Colchester United fan, which, by the way, was a massive end to a conversation when I was in the States. It's like, who do you support at Colchester? Who are they? Exactly, yeah. Who are they? Uh, who play in League Two? But I've been watching League One, League Two football for years and years now, you know, uh, upwards of 15 years. And I've seen the game change a lot. And maybe that's due to influences such as Guardiola and Klopp at the top, top clubs. Um, and managers trying to to get somewhere near that and obviously the advancement of, of coach education, which has been fantastic in the last decade or so. Um, but, you know, play, teams are playing with back threes now. Teams are playing out from the back. Uh, coaches are expecting their centre-halves to be comfortable on the ball. Um, so I think if we're developing players for the future game, that's probably just going to continue. And, you know, it probably won't be strange to see a, a player in the National League, so the fifth tier of English football, or a player... Um, in the USL, so you know, probably in terms of ability, a couple of steps obviously below the, the the MLS. It won't be unusual to see those players being being sorry, being expected to be comfortable on the ball and uh, and be able to do things and excite. Because at the end of the day, a club survives on or most clubs forget the top clubs, but most clubs survive on how many fans they get through the door. And fans come through the door now, and they see Man City play. And then they go and watch their League One side. And if they're seeing something completely different, and if they're seeing some uh, a form of football they don't really want to watch, they'll probably just vote with their feet and, and go home and watch something highly entertaining on TV. So I think as coaches come through academy football and there's more and more, like, like we said um, before you start recording, the first team manager already shot now, Danny Searle, who was uh, West Ham head of coaching. As coaches come through academy football where it's all about 4-3-3s and, and love things I've been talking about, developing the individual and developing creativity as they step into first-team football. I think we'll see those trends in first-team football in the UK and, and certainly abroad and, and definitely in the US as well. I, I completely agree with you. I think the expectations and the demands of what how people, again, want to consume football today has, has probably grown to unrealistic expectations, but in a way it's challenged coaches to to produce a product collectively on the pitch that is actually worth watching. Um, and and for, the, for the majority, I, I think there's a lot of people trying to do that. Where, where I would like to challenge or where I would actually like to see a little bit closer would be with that creativity piece, you know, are coaches reluctant to give that creativity, that license, because, because you, you, you mentioned that positional play earlier, something that's, that's almost a disciplined way of playing in possession and then once you say creativity does it give the license of players to do whatever they want hence dropping the level of control from the coach yeah i, th I think at the top level anyway um and at the older age groups you can there's room to be creative within, within a system so obviously you know 
the biggest proponent of positional play in the men's game. Someone I've mentioned a couple of times, Pep Guardiola. You can't tell me, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, Raheem Sterling and John Stones. You can't tell me they're not creative players. You know, they certainly are. Um, I think uh, at younger ages, foundation phase, youth development phase within English football, um, if you overload players with tactical information and ask too much of them tactically, they probably will go out and play with, with a lack of freedom. Um, but then again, if, you know, if my team doesn't have the ball for, for the whole game because they can't keep it and players aren't in positions to receive uh, the ball and, and players aren't comfortable enough to receive under pressure, then no one's going to develop. So 100%, you know, can we build a sort of playing model or play to a certain philosophy that allows for development and allows for, for creativity? Because you can't ask your centre-back to step into midfield with the ball uh, if there's no space there to do it. And I think that space will only come if you're, you're playing a certain style of football. But like I said before, it's certainly important not to get too carried away with the younger ages of playing really, really pretty football at the expense of the development of the individual. Someone asked you this recently online. What are practices that, that especially train the body position and awareness of places in half spaces? I don't know whether looking to the touchline or orientating to the centre field is more beneficial in these situations. I thought that was a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of people talk about half spaces like they are the, the sort of be-all and end-all football. And it's definitely a buzzword that's, that's come out with this tactical revolution, especially online. Um, people see this word half space and they're either um, hugely turned on by it and, and they think it's brilliant. And, you know, every third word they say as a coach is half space or counter press. Um, whereas really they're just important principles as, uh, and you, have, you know, playing out from the back or, or knowing how to, to play a pass through the lines or anything like that. Um, where, and a lot of coaches obviously see a term they're not used to and they haven't seen before and they think oh hang on I've been following football for X amount of years here's a new word sure this can't be a real thing surely it doesn't exist which obviously is completely wrong as well um, you know I've been and, and been lucky enough to see some very very good coaches work and some coaches work at professional clubs and top clubs in England and and they do use the half spaces and they do talk about splitting the pitch into five vertical channels and on the pitches at St George's Park the pitches are lined out into five vertical lanes so um, it's definitely something that, that there's value from in terms of how to coach the players into that I'd say it's something that you wouldn't uh, introduce like I've been saying particularly at the younger ages at the eights nines tens age there's far more important things for the player to learn but as, if you're talking about the 11 v 11 game and the first team game um, I think coaching players to to get into the right positions and to to utilise the half space, which is a brilliant, brilliant tool, especially if you're looking at um, breaking down the opponent uh, and penetrating the opponent. Um, there's, there's many forms that can exist in. And like I said, me as a coach, I don't really like to rule anything out. So before I might have been quite anti to unopposed work, whereas you can, if you really want to fine-tune detail in terms of body shape, in terms of movement, uh, an unopposed pattern off of mannequins to goal with you know, a team of adults or, or older players, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, especially, you know, if, if if you're basing your coaching off of an upcoming opponent or something like that, rather than purely looking to develop players. Um, but you could maybe do a phase of play as well. Um, a phase of play has become increasingly popular in, in, in the game where obviously you have one team attacking and one team defending out to goals. But it's really, really important. I see a lot of phases of play that aren't realistic purely because the coach is chucking them in this attack we defense scenario and think, oh, no, this looks like the game. Well, well, does it really? Are the defense pushing up high enough as high as they would? Uh, have the defense got something to play to when they win the ball? Um, you know, are the attacking team using the width of the pitch because they have to or, or just because the coach is telling them to? Um, so, so, yeah, you could even use an unopposed pattern to goal, a phase of play, or even like a possession game. You can coach anything in like a directional end-to-end possession game with target players and, and add in these two channels and it doesn't have to be the same distance and width as what they would be on a on an 11 11 pitch but um, you can add these channels in and talk about certain players and either have a condition that they have to stay in these channels or have to move into these channels or 
have to have players playing on five vertical channels, or you can say maybe it's three points if a player uh, receives it in the half space and plays out within two touches. Um, it's or just building the players' understanding gradually and at the right time and with the right group. Um, so, for example, if I had a, a grassroots side that I saw once a week in training for one hour um, and then we had a game on a Sunday, I probably wouldn't introduce the half space as a fundamental component because, as I mentioned, there are, there are you know dozens of things more important tactically and technically in the game. Um, but, yeah, those are the sort of things I'd look to do in terms of adding the, the real detail about the importance of, of the vertical channels when, when coaching players. Two things I'm fascinated about at the minute. With kind of merging academy football with senior football and trying to get players, I suppose, from that, that 16 age group plus into full-time environments. And that's, that's tactical reviews with the team is number one. Second one was individual reviews. In the academy level, tactical reviews. How does the, the post-game review done? Uh, when is it done? Yeah, so I'd definitely myself steer away from what I see a lot of coaches doing and even the majority of coaches nowadays doing, which is give the full-blown tactical review of the game 30 seconds after the final whistle's just blown. Yeah. Um, I think emotion can get hold of you as a coach. It can get hold of players. Um, and I think players won't have that same level of focus after they've just played a full 90 minutes uh, versus if you've got access to video, which is brilliant if you do. Um, I'd say definitely watch the video first, sit down, you know, uh, look through it in a composed manner uh, and, and pick out the bits, the real key bits you want to see. And then when you talk to your team, don't say, um, well, first of all, it's an academy football, so don't get too carried away with, you know, we could have done this in possession, we could have done this out of possession. This is how the team played. I'd certainly look to give it more of an individual focus um, and individually doesn't have to be technically it could be tactically, individually, you know, it was this the right position for you to be in at the time? Could you have uh, dropped off and received the ball in between the lines here? Why didn't you do that? Did you scan? Um, and and give the players ownership of that as well. If it comes too much from the coach, um, then players, they might not want to hear it. And, and especially academy players or, or pro football players in England probably aren't the sort of individuals all the time. This is very much generally speaking, it's probably, but there's probably a lot of individuals in there that didn't really like school that much and weren't the sort to, you know, love sitting in front of a, a teacher who was just dictating throughout a lesson and write, and they would just write down notes and notes um, of what the teacher's saying. They're probably people that need more of a, more hands-on in their own development and, uh, and, and in their own sort of learning. So, Something that I've done, for example, is, is taking a video and this was like a, an under-12s game and, and sent it out to the players and asked the players to review their own performance. Um, so I think if you can create reflective players at a young age, that again is, is a life skill of a person, being reflective and being able to look on um, things you've done in the past as, and if there were mistakes, you know, how do we rectify them? And if there are good things, how can I do that again? Um, but also, you know, create players that can think tactically about the game for themselves so if they themselves are looking at the video and breaking down the footage and, uh, and thinking where they could have done better, then in my opinion, they're much more likely to go and execute that in the game next week versus me as a coach telling them you should have done this better. Uh, and they're probably thinking, you know, why, why is coach having a go at me versus, you know, actually thinking about the game. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that piece about the, the, school, the people that didn't enjoy school. It's funny because there's a little bit of that. Like I'm all for in the community about looking at how to improve the facilitation of in information and educating players, getting them to, to take more of a lead role in that there. But the one thing that I, I'm, just, I'm just not buying is that we should try to make the football pitch like a classroom. And the people are saying, well, you can only deliver it for X amount of information. You should ask four questions and you should be... But surely it's a detriment for him to take something that everyone loves playing and try to mould it into something that the majority of footballers, you're right, never really enjoy going to school. Yeah, yeah no, exactly, exactly, Gary. I completely agree. And then that just goes back to overcomplicating the game. You know, if I'm a, a nine-year-old child and I've been sat in maths, geography, 
English uh, spelling all day, you know, with some boring teacher that I, that I absolutely hate to see because I see them every day, all day. And then I arrive at football training and before I can get a football out, my coach is talking to me about, you know, arriving in the half space at the right time and dropping in between the lines and, uh, and playing in diamonds. And I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to go back to that football training, am I? I'm going to want to go and kick a ball around in the park um, because, you know, uh, yeah. So I think the love of the game uh, and the enjoyment of playing should always be the, the first and foremost, most important thing. And if you can just keep that love in the game within players as a coach, you, you can definitely do a lot worse than that. Taking that a step forward, the review and then scouting reports, tendencies for opposition. I know you do some work in that area. When would you recommend that youth coaches, high school coaches, when, when should they start exposing players to scouting report and opposition tendencies? Yeah, they're, they're two separate things, really. In terms of opposition tendencies, I think that can start at quite a young age. You, you know, you say to your group at half-time or in, in the break, what's the biggest threat of the opposition? What are they good at? And they might say, oh, no, their left wing is really, really quick or their centre-back's really um, strong in the tackle and or their centre midfielders a really good passing range, and then you you pose the question to a young group of players: What can we do to stop that? Or what can you do as an individual coming up against that fast winger? Maybe you've got to start a tiny bit deeper. Or if the opposition are playing uh, a really direct style of football, then you know what do we have to do as as in your unit, your defensive unit, or maybe as a collective, as a group, um, to what's the best way to counter that and to play against that? However, if you're talking about actual um, scouting reports and presentations uh, are certainly not important um, up until maybe the under 16, under 18, under 18 age groups um, where they, where again, the result's not the be all and end all, the result's not important at all. Um, however, those players are going to be expected at some point to step into a first team environment where they do need to sit down and listen to the coach, go through a scouting report and then obviously be able to take that and apply that to their game and go and execute that on the pitch. You know, they're ultimately going to be judged on that. Then it's part of the development process that we start exposing uh, players to that from from sort of age of under 16 or maybe under 18. Last one for you. You, you do, obviously, a lot of stuff online, tactical analysis, absolutely fantastic resource for coaches. But the majority of stuff that you do is... It's high level, you know. It's it's professional pictures. It's things. It's tactical. It's it's days after games. You know, you're you're reviewing and breaking down the professional game. How do you watch the game from a development process through the through that their lens, through the top senior football lens, and then how do you how do you how do you balance going back down with the with the children, and then what applies and and what applies to different age groups? How do you go through that process? Yeah, I think it's really important because even though I've said it's important not to get carried away with the tactical elements at a really young age, if you're a coach that has a great knowledge of the game at a first team level and someone that uh, watches the game and studies the game and maybe uh, and reads a bit about the game and writes a bit about the game, then you're going to un- understand it to a certain level where you can then strip it back yourself and ask yourself what's important at what age group. Um, so, yeah, there are certain things that you can even start introducing at under 12, under 13 level that some coaches that don't have a great understanding of, of the game at a high level maybe maybe won't introduce. And, and again, there's, um, there's nothing wrong with taking a hands-off approach as a coach and more of a games-based approach as a coach. But... If you really want to create individuals that go on to succeed at a high level of the game, maybe introducing them to certain tactical concepts of, you know, how to change the tempo of their centre midfielder, you know, by playing a one-touch pass forward, or you know, if they're a left winger, when do they stay out wide, or when do they come in and join the attack in the penalty area, or if, you know, if they're a fullback, when do they choose to go and get round, or when do they go and step into midfield? These are things that definitely can be coached within the youth development phase within that 12 to 16 phase. Um, and I think, yeah, some coaches can be brilliant coaches, create great relationships with players, which is probably the most, well, it's definitely the most important thing, can run effective sessions, 
but maybe if they're missing something in terms of tactical knowledge as they approach under 15, 16, 17s, then they're selling their players short in a way and then maybe even being negligent towards their players because if their players goes and um, plays in an environment with, with uh, a coach that has had his players for a while or has had their players for a while and their players has a certain level of tactical understanding and the player comes in at under 18 that has no level of tactical understanding, then it's going to be difficult for them to, to slot into the team straight away and start games and be effective. Um, so, yeah, I'd encourage all coaches to... So watch as much football as they can, obviously, um, to, to analyse the top level, but also analyse their level. So if you're uh, an under-12s coach, um, watch your game, but maybe analyse another under-12s game if you can if you can get to it, if you're at a tournament, if there's uh, other teams playing, go and watch that game and think, you know, what are the coaches doing? What would I do differently myself? Uh, how are the players being asked to play? Um, how would my players deal with that in, in that situation? So, so, yeah, I encourage all coaches to be real students of the game um, and certainly read stuff online. There's a lot of rubbish out there um, and there's a lot of good stuff out there and it's just about trying to work out what isn't maybe useful and what is. But I certainly, you know, re go on to the Modern Soccer Coach social account <laughs> and website. Uh, that's definitely something that genuinely that, I would, uh, that I'd recommend and, and, and look at the some of the guys on Twitter creating really really good stuff um because you can definitely further your knowledge as a coach through that yeah well let's uh, hang on under that down there because that's a great point what do you what do you find yourself not specific accounts but like what do you find yourself looking at and going no that's not what i need or that is it the depth of it is it too opinionated is it i mean what what kind of moves you away from that content um, yeah, I think I think there's nothing wrong with people having opinions, but I think anyone that sells something as a, a sort of a complete fact in youth development, I, I do begin to question. And um, there are some people that are very well read and some people that um, academically have, have achieved a lot or have worked at great levels of the game. Um, but you get a lot of people, even um, people that you've had on this podcast, say one thing and be very very sure of it and then next week you're chatting with someone else who's saying the complete opposite and, and they're both experts allegedly in their field and I'm, and I'm sure there's brilliant things they can do but me as a coach and it goes back to the being adaptable piece you've got to sort of find where what you think where you lie on that spectrum and if you're really far towards one end or really far towards another end then i'd be questioning or hang on, why is that person at the other end still developing players? Because there's still probably evidence behind that, that they are doing that. Or why are they uh, being successful as a coach uh, at the top level and, and winning games? So I, I think anything kind of go. If, if a coach says, I have the answer, you know, I, and I hear it all the time after, you know, these 25 sessions, you're going to be playing like Man City. Or, you know, if you do all these drills, this young player is going to turn into, into this. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of begin to question that. Yeah, I've been really critical on, about social media probably in the past six months. But the one, not the one, but a big positive that I think social media is moving towards is that there is more scepticism now over the fact that people who are proclaiming to, to have a definite, even answer in any situation, they're not getting away with it as easy as they were two or three years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. progress maybe. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, definitely a bit of progress, um, and I agree with that. I think everyone's up for questioning. Um, yeah, people love to question even the top managers at the, at the top level, but then there's there's reasons why even Sam Allardyce keeps on getting jobs, and you know the egg behind the Twitter account is you know sat at home behind a keyboard. So I think you can you can take things from everyone. You can uh, take the positives from everyone. You can you can question everyone as well. Uh, but certainly don't take anything as read and uh, and just because you it's the first article you've read on a subject don't think you know that's the that's the keys to the kingdom brilliant brilliant Tristan what a great way to finish it thank cool. you so cool. much really good. So, yeah thanks so much mate thanks so much to Tristan for his time and his insight there I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did what stood out for me there was that piece on creativity and it's something that 
And I think the, the coaching community actually needs to, to look at it a little bit closer for ourselves, but definitely for our players, and maybe the two are connected. They probably are. Uh, I think session planning is a little bit too mundane these days. I think we look at game realistic as, as trying to create the exact numbers, the exact situation, dimensions, the exact options. And I think in doing that, sometimes we limit the player's ability to improvise, to be creative, to do something that maybe a coach wouldn't do. And the more that I do these podcasts and the more that we bring people off on that are from diverse backgrounds and that have little different views on the game, I'm finding a trend that they're going away from giving players answers all the time, giving players the, the right, this is what you should have done. No, that was wrong. Go back and do this again. And if we are going to give players a little bit more freedom, then we've got to give them a permission to do things differently than coaches would do. And that's something that, yeah, I would I would like to talk a little bit more about and I would like to look a little bit closer at because, yeah, the a lot of games as a recruiter, a lot of games in college I would go to were U16, U18, same system against same system. And you would go and watch 10, 15 games in one day and they'd all be the same and I think we need to we need to change that I think we need a little bit more diversity in systems but I, I think we need a little bit more diversity in how we're thinking of the game so uh, yeah I would love to know your thoughts on that of course at Gary Kernin on Twitter at Gary Kernin on Instagram let me know what you think I'm sure everyone has an opinion on it uh, but how do we get there what do we do how do we facilitate that in our environment without just saying you know, we're, we're attack-minded. We allow players a little bit of creativity in the final third because that's what Terry Henry said Pep did. Can we go a little bit further on that? So we'd love to continue that conversation on. Let me know what you think, of course. Appreciate you listening to the podcast. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.